Welcome to All In, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Three veterans of sustainability, David Grayson, Chris Coulter, and Mark Lee, take you behind the scenes of the most innovative and exciting aspects of business today. Welcome to the latest All In podcast, and I'm thrilled to have my colleagues David Grayson and Mark Lee with me. Hi, David. Hi, Mark. Hi, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hi, David. Well, we've had, as per usual, another eventful couple of weeks in the sustainability world. And I thought we would begin a chat around this whole notion of consistency around corporate performance. And today in our podcast, we're thrilled to have an interview with Rebecca Marmot, the CSO of Unilever. And Unilever is one of the most widely recognized and consistently recognized sustainability leaders. They have a strong track record of performance and relative consistency on doing what they do. And while no company is perfect, we've seen lots of challenging uh, scandals over the years of inconsistency of rhetoric on commitment to sustainability and then performance. And recently we saw in the news, three automakers were fined significant amounts for some collusion around fuel standards at the same time having individual quite evocative commitments to climate change. At the same time, we've also seen one billionaire go up into space who has had a very strong track record on climate. And Sir Richard Branson has had the carbon war room, and yet he's using lots of fuel to get into space. And Jeff Bezos is on track to be into space soon too. And he, of course, has made a significant commitment around his Earth Fund to address climate change. So lots of inconsistency. Mark, what are your thoughts on this gap between rhetoric and performance in the corporate sector and the impacts this has on trust overall? Yeah, it's so hard to grasp, Chris. You know, I've spent my career in this field as a booster, if you will, for the role that the private sector has a chance to play in addressing the greatest sustainability challenges. And I still absolutely believe it's essential that solving the planetary challenges that we face is a multi-sector, all-hands-on-deck task. And the private sector brings so much in the way of innovation, investment, scale, trans-border operations, everything, everything, that I think it has to be at the center of solutions and bringing about the just, equitable, and sustainable world that we all want. This story about Daimler, BMW, and Volkswagen, it just broke last week. It's broken kind of quietly, which has been surprising to me. But the sum of it is that the European Commission has fined the three automakers for colluding on limiting the development of clean emissions technology. They've been fined for not taking technology that's available forward to reduce their emissions, particularly as relates to nitrogen oxide. Why is it such a big story? Well, VW just a few years ago went through Dieselgate. It seems incredible that this has come upon them so quickly. And these are among our most advanced companies, our most advanced automakers. They're the people who have that potential to lead. We learned through this story that the technology was actually available to them, and they agreed to set that aside as part of what they would put on the table to be competitive. Anyone who'd look in from the outside who doubts whether corporates are earnest about their commitment to sustainability would say that this is exactly the kind of thing I think that gives proof. David, I'm wondering what your reaction to it's been. I'm not sure that I agree with the interpretation of what's happened, first off. I think the commission has fined two of the three, not Daimler, because Daimler fessed up that there had been collusion going on. 
And this is an instance of the automakers being in a collaboration not to do pre-competitive advancement of sustainability, but in fact to suppress competition around increasing performance in relation to emissions. So they weren't fined for breaking laws in relation to emissions or the testing on emissions. They were fined because they were breaking or presumed to be breaking EU anti-competition laws. So from my perspective, I think it's disappointing. We have to be careful because at least one of the firms involved is still considering an appeal. So we can't presume how things might develop. What it does show is that it becomes harder, or will be, in my view, become harder to convince people that there should be some more relaxation of the competition rules where groups of companies are coming together in what they're defining as pre-competitive collaboration to advance sustainability. I personally would believe there should be a kind of public defence for companies if they are collaborating around advancing technologies that will improve sustainability performance. It becomes harder to do that after this particular instance. It's a nuanced and complicated issue, but the commission has levied a very significant fine. And to your point, Mark, the headline will be damning and the public will kind of respond as this is not a great performance from companies. And and I do think, Chris, that whilst we spend our time with leading companies around the world pushing on sustainability, and we're about to hear the interview with Rebecca from one of those companies, Unilever, The trouble is that for publics around the world, they don't see that as being representative of business as a whole. Here in the UK, we've got Frank Luntz, the very famous American pro-Republican pollster, doing some work on British public opinion and underlying attitudes in the UK, replicating some of his really groundbreaking work he's done in the States around woke versus anti-woke and so on. But there's part of the research that really caught my eye about attitudes of the British public towards business. And he asked them what words or phrases they first think about when they think about British business. And the top answers were profit over people. They put shareholders first, not ordinary people, excessive CEO, and executive compensation, avoid paying taxes. These are the things that Luntz found about attitudes towards business. So he's warning that actually even in a country where we've had a long record of responsible business movements, I've personally been part of some of the organizations championing responsible business, for the British public, that's not their general view of the way that business is behaving. If we want license to operate as businesses, then we've got to be doing even better at getting a positive message across. And that's undermined by these kinds of cases. And that's so interesting in contrast to the most recent Edelman Trust Barometer, which taking everything you said about the British public view on companies as true, found that businesses are most trusted institution and that people broadly want CEOs to speak out more on sustainability and other societal issues. It seems safe to say that as citizens and consumers, we find it very difficult to know how to judge businesses and their veracity and when they're good for society as a whole and and when capitalism is being read in tooth and claw. 
Chris, you talked about the other inconsistencies that you're watching in the world at this moment and billionaires going to space. And it's another real wrestle. Billionaires in space, space. (laughs) It is such another real wrestle. I think there is evidence over time that investments in advanced technology play back through the rest of the economy in positive ways. And in fact, the story of the initial space race and the Apollo missions and getting to the moon and the technologies that that brought to society as a whole, there's much positive there. Whether the way this played out, a kind of last minute sprint between Branson and Bezos to be the first billionaire to make it to that 50 mile orbit and claim that title was a noble part of that history, I don't know. But I think it's too early to judge yet whether the civilian era of space is net positive or net negative. And it will depend on the science and everything else that's conducted as part of these missions that will go along with and in theory be supported by the tourism aspect of it. The people who can afford to take that kind of super tourism, very exclusive tourism, are people who, by and large, are going to be able to have quite a lot of influence over big investment funds or whatever it may be. And so if they get a different view of the fragility of planet Earth, and it's a transformational moment for them in their sense of the importance of preserving the only planet that we currently have access to, then that could be a benefit. Come on. I think the intention, again, is really important here. What what do people see? Is the intention of these billionaires to go into space to create more civilian applications of technology and to enlighten themselves in the world? I mean, they've already put, one of them puts $10 billion into an Earth fund, so they already get it. I think we're being too generous here. I mean, the other people are going to go on those more commercial Virgin Galactica and and the Beatles. I I think a nice walk in a rainforest somewhere would give the same level of impression of of the fragility of the planet. Anyway, back to intention, back to Frank Lewis. I think the, the trust thing is really fundamental. And this is where the average person does miss judge or or can't see the actual intention of what companies are doing. And they only are reinforced with the sense they're just profit-oriented. They aren't really caring. They're not committed. And all of our work back to 2001 at Globescan on tracking public trust in, in big companies, it's been pretty flat apart from last year with through COVID, there was a little bit of an increase. But the gap, in contrast to the Edelman study, the gap we see between other institutions like NGOs, like scientists in particular, is enormous. And, and I think it's because of the kind of question we're asking, which is around trust to operate in the best interest of society, which is a broader, thicker construct, which is a harder one to live up to. But I think it's the core of what Frank Lutz has, has picked up, is that people want companies to do more than be narrow interested in profiteer in their own self-interest in, in many ways. David, this to me feels like it's very much an ethical conversation when it comes to how companies behave and perform and within the lines of norms and expectations of society and in alignment with their pronounced commitments to purpose and sustainability. How do you see in your role as the chair of the Institute of Business Ethics, how do you see ethics currently today in corporate conversations or corporate commitments? It's really important that companies, whether they are big global businesses or they are small businesses, define how they expect all of their employees to behave as representatives of the company, what the expectations are that anyone who interacts with the company should have of that business. I mean, that for me is what a code of ethics is all about or a statement of general business principles, how we want all of our people to conduct themselves 
on the business's time, doing the business of the business. There's no point in just having a code of ethics unless it's been really socialized in the organization. So unless people understand that this is really what is expected of them and there will be penalties if they operate against the code of ethics. So that means regular reinforcement by the senior leadership of the organization, talking about it, giving examples of what it means, regular training programs to update, also to make sure that everyone has a chance to explore some of the ethical dilemmas. I was you know, thinking back to this kind of collusion case amongst the European automakers. I suspect now that was a group of people in a part of the organization who just weren't thinking through, gosh, is what we're doing here really consistent with the code of ethics that we have? Let's talk about a different type of collaboration that we learned of this week, which is new and exciting. And it is the Race to Zero Breakthroughs, which is by a number of retailers focused on the Race to Zero that the UNFCC has instituted in the run-up to COP26. And this has been instigated by IKEA, H&M, Walmart, and Kingfisher, as ways to try and address some of the lack of retail commitment or goals oriented towards climate change. So they've identified, I think, a, a missing piece of the puzzle and have swum into it in a very visible way. Mark, what's your sense of what's most striking about this new collaboration, Race to Zero Breakthroughs Retail Campaign? Yeah, first, I'm a real Race to Zero fan and making sure people know what it is. You know, this is a UN campaign that is designed to make sure that non-state actors, so everybody else in addition to government, get on board and behind the Paris Agreement and help push it through. So as much as COP26 coming up this fall and the Paris Agreement itself is the immediate domain of governments, and they're the ones who have to lead on that in a treaty sense, this has, I think, been a really positive initiative to expand the literal race to zero, to a net zero economy, by appointing climate champions. And there are these two folks, Nigel Topping and Gonzalo Munoz, who are the, the literal champions. And they're kind of now working sector by sector to get people aligned and, and all pulling together on this rope so that we can get the job done. The retail campaign is the most recent one to launch. Each is tailored a bit to the characteristics of the industry. So you ran through some of the key brands who are helping lead the UN tells us that only 5% of companies in the retail industry have currently joined the race to zero and have a meaningful net zero commitment for 2050. And so this is meant to get retailers everywhere to work together, to work within their trade associations, and to apply sort of some of the characteristics of the industry, like their capacity for innovation that goes with the design that goes behind the clothes and consumables that we wear and use to solve the climate challenge. So love to see it, really excited, not totally surprised, but very pleased at the leading brands that are stepping out to try and draw others in by their own commitment. And of course, wish them every success. I think this kind of collaboration in industry, as well as others cross industry, are incredibly important if we're going to make the progress that's necessary. One of the interesting points was the emphasis on getting the retail trade associations geared up as well. That's one of the important ways of getting to a much larger group of businesses. If the leading companies in particular sectors put more weight on their trade associations and put more pressure on their trade associations in which they are active. You know, the way that Alan Jope, for instance, in Unilever wrote a couple of years ago now to all the trade associations in which Unilever is a member, 
asking them to confirm that the policies and the activities of that trade association are consistent with the Paris Climate Agreement. That was a great example of a company using the leverage which it has as a leading company when it comes to trying to push the trade association. CSR Europe's done some interesting work with PwC around looking at the number of significant trade associations in Europe and what's their kind of stage of maturity on working with member companies around their association in relation to sustainability. And I think that has to be one of the next building blocks. Well, it does also, though, say for me, it's my goodness, it's getting an incredibly crowded world. I mean, the Race for Zero umbrella alone has more than 20 different sub-campaigns and things. It means that large companies especially are going to have to really up their game in terms of thinking about what they want from each partnership that they may be a member of. What's their strategy for those different coalitions, those different networks that they're joining, and how they go about segmenting which are the ones that will really give them the greatest bang, not just for their bucks, but also for the precious commodity of their senior leadership's involvement. There was another association or another alliance just announced on the back of the G20 Climate Summit in Venice called the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, NZIA, another new acronym for us to deal with. And what's interesting, there are about four or five big insurance companies that joined that. How do you guys think these things get kicked off? Is it personal relationships? Does the CEO of Walmart phone the CEO of Ikea or vice versa and say, we should do this? And then who else do we need? And I know someone from H&M. Is it a personal sense or is there something more structured, you think, on how these different clusters of companies begin? I mean, you certainly need some champions. And the champions need to be representing credible businesses with a good track record around sustainability or the particular dimension of sustainability that the collaboration is going to focus on. You need typically a kind of a social entrepreneur who is going to be the galvanizing force that will lead the coalition in terms of the day-to-day activities. And very often to really get them started, it may be that social entrepreneur, it may be a different person who's a really good facilitator, who's trusted by the different players to bring them together. Then you need people inside the different companies who've got the clout, they have the authority to commit their businesses, to give the time to make the collaboration work. It takes time to build up trust. Collaborations aren't an easy thing to do, particularly if you're talking about serious commitments, which we have to be, otherwise it's just not worth the sweat. Let's talk a little bit about the climate change further. We have more extreme weather events happening across the world. In the Northern Hemisphere, we have expected deep floods in China. We've got extraordinary record-breaking heat on the west part of North America. In the global south, June was the hottest record winter time ever in New Zealand recorded. We've got extraordinary heat breaking elements in wintertime in other parts of the global southern hemisphere as well. Mark, you're living in the West Coast in California. You've got heat. You've got another forest fire season. What do you think this is really doing with the public and understanding of the connection between climate change? This is a number of waves you've gone through in California with the same sort of story of extreme heat, droughts, and forest fires. What's the impact on the ground? Yeah, I think it is definitely part of people's, you know, just every day now. And I don't almost have a conversation with a day going by where fires and wildfire season and the fear of smoke and the impact that it will have isn't part of one of those conversations. 
some of the worst action so far this season has been up in the province of British Columbia, a little tiny town called Lytton spent three days setting all-time Canadian temperature records and then was very literally evaporated in a fire that just swept through and destroyed the town in a matter of, I think, hours. There are 307 fires burning across British Columbia right now. I looked at the dashboard. Uh, this is where you know I grew up and I have family in the region and there are fires burning around all the communities where they live and work. My own family is planning a road trip from California to Montana as of this coming weekend. And one of the factors affecting our planning for that trip when we make it in recent years has been which route we should drive based on where fires and smoke are most concentrated. And right now there are incredible, as in incredible and terrible fires in Southern Oregon that may affect our route north and may push us to go east first into Nevada and then north instead. Those same fires are threatening California's power supply. The region in Oregon that is burning is an area that sends electric power into the state of California. It's pushed us to the edge of rolling blackouts. And for all of this, the story is that it's only July. So very limited snowfall last winter record low reservoirs all across the West. And fire is one of the ways this translates, but the impact on biodiversity is enormous. You know, there are early estimates that this heat dome that formed over Western Canada and the Pacific Northwest killed billions of marine mammals while it was so concentrated on the coast and across that region. It means that soil is drier almost than it's ever been, and people are fearful of a Dust Bowl-like effect. It means that the competition for water is incredible, and it is literally sometimes a competition that brings physical confrontation. It is a massive political debate here in the West. It is a competition between farming and adequate water release to make sure that rivers have enough water in them to stay cool enough for spawning salmon and other freshwater species. There are no easy choices in all of this. It's the new normal that we have to live with, as uncomfortable as that might be. I think there is a tremendous amount that can be done. There's no question we can manage water, among other things, much better still in the West. But right now we're racing to catch up. We're trying to learn quickly how to better live under these conditions. And even here in the UK, we've just had a big report the last few days about the kind of costs of retrofitting air conditioning and kind of climate mitigation methods into the UK housing stock. I think from memory, the figure was something like £9,000 a house, which if it had been done when the house was built, would only cost £2,000. And yet, despite now years of these more and more frequent instances of extreme weather conditions, we still don't seem to be taking even the most basic kind of changes that are needed, let alone having the urgency around the overall climate emergency. I always keep saying, and I'm an optimist by force of conviction, but there are some days when I just think, what is it going to take to make enough people start lobbying their political leaders. Maybe one more billionaire in space. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's talk a little bit about the social side of the ESG equation. And Bernard Looney, the, the CEO of, of BP, came out saying mental health should be treated as one of the big global priorities. In many ways, that makes sense. It's one of those issues that has never been fully embraced by society. It's always been under the covers a little bit. The pandemic and things like the climate crisis, I think, have caused greater anxiety across society and have had impacts in invisible ways. So it is a real pandemic on its own in many ways. And we have historically seen companies embrace and engage on the conversation, but it's never gotten to a grand global conversation thus far. David, what are your thoughts on Looney's pronouncement and just the mental health conversation? So I think it's really important that top business leaders are open about these questions. You're right, it has been for years a kind of taboo that you just didn't talk about mental ill health, even though one in four adults during the course of their lives will experience considerable mental ill health. I've been talking to quite a lot of people in big international businesses the last few months who are talking about the kind of mental health tsunami of issues coming up as one of the long-term impacts of COVID-19 and of the lockdown of the global economy and so on. So I think businesses do need to take this really seriously as part of a comprehensive health and well-being agenda. We had a big report done for the UK government a few years ago by Paul Farmer, who runs one of our major mental health charities together with Lord Stevenson, a major city and business figure. And one of the things that they talked about very tangibly that companies can do, and some of the leading companies have been following up that Stevenson Farmer report by instigating networks in their companies of mental health first aiders, just like you have physical first aiders in organizations for a long time. Now you have also mental health first aiders who trade in the rudiments of just spotting colleagues who may be suffering and who can alert people, who can give them some basic pointers to where to turn to for help and trying to make the organization as a whole more conscious of these kind of questions and critically that it is okay to talk about it. Indeed, it's really important to talk about it mental ill health can have all kind of other very negative consequences. And it has lots of connections to human capital. And I think investors will be also increasingly interested in how companies are managing this human capital from a humane, but also productivity perspective. Yeah, I see it as a really positive step. You know, it would be just false to pretend that mental health didn't matter in a business setting. And it matters, of course, because of its impact on people, but it also matters because of the impact on the whole business. And I've been listening to folks first, you know, a number of years ago, in particularly the extractive industries and other kind of manufacturing environments where the environments themselves can be so dangerous with the obvious realization that you don't want people working or going down a mine shaft or in a heavy equipment environment, if they are facing mental health struggles, that's going to affect everybody that they are facing them with. So it's literally to everyone's benefit to help individuals address this. I think it fits in a context of human capital, the conversations that are emerging around considering the employee as a whole person, meaning all of them, every aspect of their life and health inside and outside of work, because there isn't really a boundary there. What happens to us outside of work comes back in and impacts performance and focus and everything else. I think it's such a positive step 
because of impacts of the pandemic. We have all spent more time isolated from colleagues and others over the course of this past year, probably than in most of our lives. And it can only have exacerbated some of the strains that go with mental health. So I'm glad to see the momentum that's happening behind it. Well, without further ado, let us shift to our delightful conversation with Rebecca Marmot, the Chief Sustainability Officer of Unilever. We are thrilled to have a very special guest today on the All In podcast. Um, David, Mark, and I are very excited to welcome Rebecca Marmot, the Chief Sustainability Officer at Unilever. Morning, good afternoon. Nice to see you guys. We, we are cutting across time zones, so we are morning in certain parts of the world and afternoon in the UK, of course. So thanks so much for being us with Rebecca. We know how extremely busy you are, but we know how much you have to offer on what's happening in the sustainable business world today. We like to ask the question, first of all, to our guests, like, how did you get to where you are? What is your story of how you became the chief sustainability officer of Unilever? Was this a, a lifelong ambition as a little girl growing up in the UK? This is what you wanted to do? When I was younger, I actually always had an ambition that I wanted to work in TV journalism, international politics. So I was, I was really inspired by newsreaders and newscasters like Kate Aidy at the time. There weren't that many female journalists. And I thought that I wanted to do something that was connected into current affairs. And I was fascinated by the world of government and how did things get done or not get done in the world. But then when I, I was at school and at university, I ended up, I studied international relations and I ended up doing a graduate training scheme actually in marketing and communications. And then while I was doing that, so 22 in London, I started to just have a basic understanding of what and who different stakeholder audiences were. So I did various different projects as you do at that stage and that age, worked with different consultancies and with different groups. I was seconded into the UK government for a while, which gave me a bit of an understanding about how complicated it is really trying to set up and bring together these big public-private partnerships. I'd like to say that I had some you know, great foresight around sustainability at that stage, but, but really it was still very much in its infancy. And I think the word sustainability wasn't used as it is in the current context. But I ended up, after I'd been working in the UK government's comment, going to L'Oreal. And L'Oreal at the time were looking at branching out and doing things a little bit differently. So I got involved in the work around the acquisition of the body shop. And that was really the first time that major corporates were really starting to think about actually how might we talk about provenance, how are we going to talk about things like sourcing in a way that resonates in a mainstream way with the consumers that we're serving around the world. And I think at that time, you know, it was a real departure, certainly in beauty and personal care, to move away from only really talking about product benefits. And I remember when I was at L'Oreal, Dove launched the self-esteem programme and I remember thinking, wow, that's really clever. I love what they've done around that and actually talking about the concept of real beauty and really something that was just so genuine. For me, it really resonated. And as luck would have it, an opportunity came up at Unilever. So at this stage, Patrick Chaskow was still CEO. Paul joined about three or four months after I joined. And I think at that stage, there was just this explosion in the world and this realisation and reality that actually business had to be done in a different way. And I remember quite early on in, in Paul's tenure, going into his office to meet him. And I, you know, I was pretty junior at that point. So intimidated walking yeah. into the CEO's office and sort of TV screens on in the background, you know, and Lehman Brothers was collapsing and you know, this whole system that, that we had all had and, and, and operated in for so long, that sort of key capitalist construct was really starting to be questioned. 
And Paul said at the time, you know, I think we have an opportunity to do business in a really different way. I want to be more equitable. I want to be able to share the fortunes and grow the business, but do so in a way that is so much more beneficial right the way from the farmers in the field that are doing the sourcing of our raw materials right the way through the value chain, thinking about the small scale shopkeepers and actually you know, I think if we did do business in a different way, it's going to be the model that will really resonate and shape the future as we move forward. And so we started working early on on the very basics of what then evolved into the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. Initially, we were looking at the environmental impacts and how we would be able to limit the environmental impact of a huge, big global company like Unilever. And we started looking at what could we do more positively with the brands in the way that Dove had done with its self-esteem communication program. And of course, from there, you know, we started to have much greater understanding, really started to deep dive into supply chains, understand the complexity, start to think about how you would communicate that to consumers. Then, of course, sort of 2013, 2014, the SDGs were being shaped Paul at the time was asked by Ban Ki-moon, who was, who was Secretary General then, if he would be the voice of business in inputting into that process. Because I think there was a realisation that the Millennium Development Goals had made some great progress, but they didn't really, well, they didn't involve the private sector very much. And actually, if you were to bring the private sector into that SDG process, you would be able to leverage the best expertise from governments, from NGOs, from the UN, but from the business world as well. And I think then we really had started to understand the USLP and and what we had launched in 2010 in a much more complicated way and really started to see how through the connection of different stakeholders and through working through the ecosystem of something like the SDGs that we would be able to shape not only our own business but also work with others to bring that on. And so during all this time I was working in different parts of Unilever got experience in different brands, different divisions, external affairs but, but of course by this stage we had a much more concrete and formalized sustainability structure and then as we fast forward a bit more Paul announced that he was retiring in 2018-2019 and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about this some more Chris around the evolution of then what was the USLP and into the compass but I was very involved in that process and how we would continue to evolve Unilever's sustainability journey and so when Paul and Jeff Seabright my predecessor both retired at the same time I was extremely fortunate to be able to go through the interview process for that role and then ended up in this role reporting into Alan Jape who is our wonderful CEO now as as you know so long answer to the question Uh, but that's how I ended up there a a long journey and along the way describing the contemporary sustainability history which is fantastic so you're, you're part and parcel I was really struck when you mentioned the Lehman moment And capitalism was at least in a moment on the ropes and talking with Pullman at that stage about how it could be different. And so here we are in 2021. I'm certain that Unilever is markedly different. I wonder how different you perceive the whole system to be. How far do you think we've evolved in that time? I think a lot, actually. Sustainability has become so mainstream. I mean, particularly the terrible situation of the past 16, 18 months around the world with the pandemic. I think has really accentuated the focus on how interconnected we are as a world. The huge mainstream awareness now around climate change and then, of course, Black Lives Matters and this realisation that there is a terrible social inequity that still exists around the world. And actually, if we don't tackle those two big issues around trying to build a more equitable world and tackling climate change, everybody is going to be in a worse off place. I'd really like to think that the pandemic, if something 
positive could come out of what was such a terrible 18 months, it would be that what was such a fractured society, which actually ultimately holds back, in my opinion, economic progress, which is bad for business, it's bad for livelihoods, it's negative all around. Actually, that as we come out of that, there'll be a much clearer role for business in shaping a more equitable future for everybody else. It's not just Unilever. You know, there are lots of other really progressive forward thinking companies now who are also looking at these kinds of models. You know, the SDGs themselves are much more understood now. I think they're more mainstream, but also smaller businesses as well. There is a much greater sense now of everybody's own role as an individual and what they can do to make a positive contribution in terms of changing their lifestyle, changing their habits, just trying to make some really small changes in our everyday lives around you know, thinking about our recycling, thinking about our own carbon footprints, thinking about how we can really look into the provenance of the goods that we're buying or the services that we're using around the world. So I do think there is a shift. Part of that as well is you know, driven by Gen Z and the younger generation now. They've grown up in a world where they won't stand for inequity. You know, that push from, I think, the voice of youth is, is really, really important as well. The more that we see changing shareholder pressure, the more that we look at a very real focus from investors on understanding about sustainability, you know, all of these different stakeholders coming together. I feel maybe I'm false sort of hope for me, but I, I don't think so. You know, I, I really feel that there is a positive shift around sustainability now and it's very much becoming mainstream. Yeah, it feels markedly different to me as well. I think 2008 post-crisis, I worried about the future of our field. You know, how enduring would sustainability be inside corporations and would it mean a reversion to a prior norm? And I look at where we are in 2021 and having weathered, well, still weathering in so many parts of the world, this latest crisis. And I think you see how much more central sustainability is to the whole agenda. So not a false optimism for me, but just as you strung it together there, that 12 years in three minutes to launch us, I was really struck at how quickly that has all almost collapsed or, or come together. And I love your early work, I guess, Rebecca, in government around stakeholder engagement, which is now this multi-stakeholder world we're living in. So that's that's a nice full circle. You referenced the sustainable living plan and the creation of that and the different approach to business. And you went through a decade of it and you also referenced the winding down of it. Why was there a transition away from the SLP and not like a 2.0 version of it to something new, which I know you call Compass. Well, what was the thinking behind that evolution of the strategy of the company? As you can imagine, Chris, there's a lot of talk and debate <laughs> internally around what to do. And, you know, I talked about that seminal moment when, when Paul announced that he was stepping down. We were thinking in depth at that point, okay, Paul's stepping down. It's the end of the USLP. It's 2020. Let's look back over this 10 years and be really honest with ourselves about what was successful of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And also, we you know, where we didn't do so well and what lessons did we learn? You know, the first part of that was we realised we'd had massive reach and impact and scale. We'd reached over a billion people with the health and wellbeing initiatives that we'd set ourselves, so through Lifebuoy, through Domestos, through Dove, you know, massive, massive impact in terms of that awareness We'd seen cost savings as well, which I think is crucial. You know, we'd saved over a billion by looking at how we could be more effective in our own manufacturing operations. So things like swapping to renewable energy. We'd seen it really resonating with consumers, what we call our sustainable living brands. So the brands that put sustainability really front and center of their consumer facing proposition had, were growing twice as quickly as the brands where we were doing that, but not talking about it. We learned a lot as well. You know, when we set those targets in 2010, we didn't have either 
the level of sophistication and understanding, quite frankly, a formal plan in place on how we were going to reach all those targets. We found things like, for example, measuring social impact is actually really difficult. You know, the kinds of programs that we were running, for example, around wash, around water, sanitation and hygiene, we hadn't the first time around thought about, well, how will we eliminate double counting? What if we're doing a gender empowerment program? around women's livelihood, so for example, expanding our last mile distribution program. And at the same time, we're doing a program in that village on hand washing. How are we going to measure that? How can we make the direct correlation and connection back to the programs that we're running? How can we isolate our own intervention? I think on behavior change, we've done behavior change for years, obviously through the brands, encouraging people to clean their teeth, eat a more healthy diet, and wash their hands five times a day. But actually at a mass market level with the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, Sometimes it was challenging. Everybody or most people, when you talk to them, want to do the right things. People want to make the right choices around the environment or around buying brands that they believe reflects the values that they stand for. But actually doing that at a large scale around the environment's hard. People don't necessarily think if I'm using a washing machine and I wash at a lower temperature, is it really going to make a difference? Can I make a difference? And, you know, I like long, hot showers, so maybe I don't want to have a shorter shower. So we realised actually... Focusing on individuals and behavior was important, but systems change was actually the most important thing that we could do. And that's where we really had to start to shift our focus. You know, if I think about the behavior change piece around carbon footprint, actually working with government on ensuring there is a really established renewable energy infrastructure in a country is a bigger thing for us to be able to do rather than trying to rely on individual behavior change programs. You know, that was part of it, looking at the lessons learned from the USLP. And then I think the second part of it was the world changed massively between 2010 and 2020. And we wanted to reflect that. We'd done a great job with the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. But again, you know, when I looked back and the team looked back at it, we thought maybe it was too top down. Maybe we need to be really, really understanding how we do this from a market level upward. We set out on a huge consultation exercise. We spoke to 40,000 of our employees around the world in different roles, different functions, different countries, all different levels across the company to ask them what did they think the top 10 sustainability challenges were in the world and what did they crucially think were the areas where Unilever could really make a difference. And of course, some some issues that hadn't really been talked about in 2010 massively came to the fore in, in 2020. So you know, plastics, much greater awareness around plastics, on the social side, massive, massive focus on, on mental health and well-being that we hadn't really talked about in 2010. It wasn't something that was discussed as much. And of course, we then spoke to many, many of our external stakeholders, different retailers, the NGO world. We spoke to the UN. We spoke to governments. We spoke to industry groups. We spoke to retailers, really to try and understand, again, their, their answers and thoughts around those two questions. And I think where that got to was then what we call the compass Instead of having a standalone sustainability plan, which we had with the USLP, and even though it was very much integrated into the business, probably there was still more that, that we could do. And then, you know, a separate sort of day-to-day business model that was operating with normal processes that we'd had in place for, for many years, we decided to integrate them into two. We launched what we call our Compass, which is Integrated Business and Sustainability Model So it's got five big key strategic choices, one on portfolio, one on brands, one on markets, one on channels and one on culture. But then sprinkled throughout that is a lot more detail around sustainability, big targets around things like plant based food. So obviously a huge sustainability angle, better for the environment, 
really healthy, good for our diets, but actually at the same time, a big commercial focus now for Unilever. And on the brand section, you're really delving into how we're going to improve the health of the planet. What will we do around people's health, confidence and well-being? How do we expand that work that we'd started on contributing to a fair and more socially inclusive world, but really integrating it? So, you know, for example, on the social side, commitments to spend at least two billion a year by 2025 with diverse businesses. So actually really putting our money where our mouth is to make sure that we are able to include more marginalized groups into Unilever's procurement strategy, big commitments around things like living wage. It's a massive undertaking. We can't do that on our own. We've got to work with industry groups and with others to make that a reality. Tons more around the environment, of course. But again, I think a shift from stopping things like deforestation, which, which we had been on a journey on with the USLP, but actually moving into things like regenerative agriculture too. So really thinking about how business can be a force for good. I hope anyway that that integrated joined up model is the success plan for the future. And connecting even more dots than we were aware of a decade ago, right? That all these things are are, are that much more complicated and more systemic. So Rebecca, I'd love to explore the leadership requirements in order to really deliver on the compass. I was actually on one of the stakeholder calls when Alan and colleagues were launching the compass and explaining the rationale for it. Towards the end of that call, he made a really interesting comment my ears pricked up about immediately, which was that he was saying, look, my style's different to Paul. Paul was a great out there campaigning CEO, activist, etc. He said, I'm a different kind of person, absolutely committed to this, but in a different way. And he said, the crucial thing is that we've got to distribute the accountability for really delivering on this to many more people across the organization. And so we require more distributed leadership around sustainability. What's that meaning in practical terms? Is it changing the way that you are preparing high flyers, the top management program, learning and development? Is that changing in order to make this distributed leadership work? I think Alan's probably being a bit humble. You know, he is an incredible leader who has massively embraced his sustainability agenda. You know, it's about building on the brilliant platform that we had from Paul and everything that we talked about with the SDGs in 2015, and now taking it to the next level and really, really mainstreaming sustainability right the way across the business. You know, and I think Alan's vision for doing that is, as you say, around this concept he has called distributed leadership. Sustainability isn't just about a job that the CEO does as part of his external engagement. Of course, that's hugely important. And, you know, Alan is a talisman in so many different areas of the CEO agenda when it comes to sustainability. But in order to really embed it across the business, actually what Alan had a vision of, and now this is what we're doing at Unilever, and for me, it's you know, a brilliant strategy, is this concept around distributed leadership. So, for example, Hanukkah Faber, who is the president of our Foods and Refreshments Division, is leading on the work on food systems transformation. So, the pre-summit for the food systems summit that is taking place this autumn is happening in Rome in a couple of weeks. Hanukkah will be representing Unilever there. Lena Nair, who is our chief HR officer, really driving all the leadership around the future of work. Peter Culver, who leads our home care division, leading a lot of work around the wash agenda, around water, sanitation and hygiene, because, of course, that's so relevant to his portfolio of brands. And I think what it's enabled us to do is really expand the sustainability work that we were doing. So it's really day-to-day embedded into all our division and into our brand strategies. That's really been a key element of the compass. 
Yes, and I've certainly noticed many more senior Unilever people taking a higher profile on some of these critical sustainability agenda items. And for the next generation of Unilever leaders, is it changing the way that you're trying to prepare high flyers for bigger leadership roles in the future in the company? For me, certainly the biggest advantages around sustainability when it comes to our own employees is how important it is for us in terms of attracting and retaining talent. We know when we ask our own employees around the world that one of the key reasons that new joiners come to Unilever is because of sustainability, because they feel they want to work at a company that represents things that are important to them. And that's even more important when it comes to the next generation and comes to to younger talent. So the interns and the grads who are coming in, the apprentices coming into Unilever, and that's the same around the world. I think we're now the top grad recruiter in, I think it's 52 different markets around the world because people want to come and work for us because of that focus on sustainability. You know, and that doesn't just mean working in marketing and getting to work on a dev campaign. It could be in supply chain, working on sustainable sourcing. It could be working in customer development with what we call our customers, the big retailers around the world, working hand in hand, for example, with Walmart on communicating sustainability. It could be in finance, thinking about some of the investors and the interest now in sustainability, you know, really embedded into the company. And I think the other thing that we've done at Unilever as well over the past couple of years is we've launched what we call our purpose workshops for everybody right the way across the business, regardless of where you're working, what job you're doing, what country you're in. And it's a two day course that helps people to really identify what their purpose is and how do they bring that to life at work. And I think that's been hugely empowering because, of course, everyone has their own individual reasons and rationale and the things that really drive them day to day. I think the combination of being able to express and and live that purpose, of course, it's not going to be all day, every day, but really being able to shape your job around that and shape your career trajectory around that added into this mainstreaming of sustainability. So it's right the way across the business. It has been so, so important to us. And Again, I think we see this not just in Unilever, but this desire, particularly from the younger generation, to really work and to be able to contribute. So, Rebecca, we've talked a little bit about the Compass launch and replacing the sustainable living plan. I attended the North America version of the launch, and I was so struck that for all that it was a celebration of the 10 years past and celebration of this new plan forward, there was embedded in there this dissatisfaction that for all the effort Unilever's made as a leader in this space, that you didn't feel you'd fully proved the business case for sustainability yet. And that kind of came alongside, we saved a billion dollars doing this. We've made this huge progress on these elements of the equity agenda. So how will Compass going forward work to improve the business case and to kind of close that gap so we really understand where sustainability enhances an organization like yours? We talked a little bit about trust and sustainability, but we came up with a business case around sustainability, the growth, trust, risk, cost matrix. Growth, I think I've talked a little bit about some of the work that we've done looking at the correlation between making sustainability the key part of the consumer proposition and how those brands are then growing more quickly. When you put a sustainability lens across a lot of the work that we're doing in supply chain, it can really have huge business benefits. So, for example, if we set up sustainable supply chains for really important crops and commodities that are essential to our business... For example, something like vanilla, we have a massive ice cream portfolio and we wanted real vanilla in our ice cream portfolio. So we worked very closely with Save the Children and Simrise, a big vanilla partner for us in sourcing. 
to really understand what were the social issues that were impacting farmers in Madagascar where we were doing our sourcing? How could we help them to grow a better crop, have a higher yield, higher quality, and at the same time, really help to boost their livelihoods? So really trying to understand what were the structural barriers that were stopping them from doing that and working with Save the Children to implement a really joined up livelihoods program so that we could enable them to grow their own businesses. And of course, then by doing that, we're guaranteeing for our vanilla supply chain, really high quality vanilla. So we did that. We signed an offtake agreement to do that for three years. I think it's a good example of showing how when you put that sustainability lens onto something like the supply chain, it makes a big difference. But I think the main part with the compass is really this integration. So the fact that you've got sustainability written into all these key business strategies for Unilever. So, you know, not having it as something that's standalone in really thinking, for example, if you think about the work on equity and diversity and inclusion, actually looking at how do we expand the work that we started a few years ago on unstereotyping our advertising. So really thinking about the power that we can have second largest advertiser in the world. If we change the way that we portray people in advertising when it really makes a big difference to helping to break down stereotypes so I think it's that integration that for me is going to be absolutely critical. You've convinced me a great deal and I want to know how well it's working convincing investors so we've touched just very briefly on ESG earlier in the conversation and they've emerged as a more and more potent voice and stakeholder in the sustainability agenda how does this come to make sense to the investment community? Actually, we're in a closed period at the moment. But I think when you look back over the past few years, and particularly over this past 12 to 18 months, there's been such a huge interest from the investor community in sustainability right the way across the board. And we've seen examples in other sectors of really some quite activist stance by investors who are really pushing the sustainability agenda because, A, they know that it's important to consumers and so to the the customers of of different companies that they're looking at, but also be in terms of progressing on business as usual. And I think there's lots of talk around woke and lots of talk about things like greenwashing. But actually, for me, you know, the substance is making sure that companies and organizations are actually launching programs and have a very specific trajectory and program in mind to be able to achieve net zero, lots of talk about net zero, not just about thinking, for example, about offsetting, but actually making very tangible changes to the way that you run the business so that you're actually looking at absolute emissions reductions. And in terms of investors, we took actually to our annual general meeting at the beginning of May, our climate transition action plan. So we've really mapped out now this is our plan. These are our targets. You know, they're a long way off. They're talking about things that we want to achieve in 5, 10, 15 years. So, of course, from an investor perspective, it's really helpful for us to be able to lay out, well, this is what we're looking to do over the next year or three years and putting those interim targets in place, because I think that's hugely, hugely important. And then I think the second part around investors, again, is this real galvanizing across the industry around changing the system. We made a commitment, for example, around paying a living wage. So everybody who's directly providing goods and services to Unilever will earn a living wage or income by 2030. So, you know, for us, that's really about eradicating poverty wages, making sure everybody that's involved with us is paid a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. But of course, that isn't something that we can do on our own. So it's really important that we're working with our suppliers, that we're joining forces with other peer companies, with governments, with civil societies to do that. And again, I think when you get that mass mobilization around an issue like that, of course, the investor community is going to take note. 
Rebecca, we're almost out of time, but interesting there you were talking in the context of making that living wage commitment real. You rattled off a number of the partnerships that you have to have in order for it to happen. And of course, that gets replicated in every one of the major commitments that you're making. How does Unilever go about prioritizing? These are the really significant partnerships for the next few years that we have to really get behind and put our most senior people in and make sure they're properly trained, properly prepared for what's involved in those kinds of coalitions. I mean, we talked a little bit about the process that we went through with the Compass, the consultations that we did. We have a materiality index, obviously, that looks at the threats and the opportunities and the areas of key interest for us as a business. When you look across the Compass, you know, you quickly see that that first part of it, the, the key strategic priorities, they're not unusual for a consumer goods company. You do expect to see something about portfolio, something about market, something about channels. But then when you go into a little bit more detail and look at the metrics that we've set ourselves underneath that, you'll see that they very closely reflect our portfolio. So, for example, all of the work we're doing around people's health, confidence and well-being really focused on our brand portfolio. So a big chunk of work around positive nutrition growth around things like plant-based and then a big chunk of work around health and well-being so looking at issues like sanitation oral health skin health and healing because that's where our expertise already sits within the business we've got big billion euro brands that are in that area and then when you look across other parts of the compass and again you look at those commitments really for example concentrating in on things like waste-free world so plastics making sure that we're totally revolutionizing the way that we approach packaging so some of that is around absolute reduction and that's obviously critical just using less plastic to start with but then also actually thinking about our responsibility in terms of setting up infrastructures working with others to make sure that there is a recycling infrastructure in place thinking actually about how do we change into a a circular economy model? Maybe we don't need to put some of the products in packaging. Maybe there's other examples of things that we could do. There's refill services. There's actually whole new ways of attracting consumers and really improving a product without even having to have any packaging at all. Really thinking about bringing the farmers in when we're talking about things like regenerating nature, actually empowering them as the custodians of the land. So I think it's really about making sure that you're joined up right the way across the value chain and focusing on the areas where you've got the expertise and then partnering with others who can complement the work that you're doing in order to have a greater impact overall. So getting the right people in the room. Exactly. And you are obviously one of those key right people in the room and the distributed leadership. <laughs> sure about is, that. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I think we are. And the comprehensiveness with which you talk about the agenda and show through it is, is extraordinary. So We are so grateful for all of your sharing your wisdom and expertise, Rebecca. We know there's lots more exciting things that are on the horizon for Unilever and for you, and we look forward to absorbing that as it comes out. But we really are grateful for you taking the time and sharing all this with us. Thank you. Oh, Chris, David, Mark, thanks so much. It's been great. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the All In Podcast. If so, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any future episodes. And why not also give us a five-star review on iTunes? It helps others to find us, which helps spread the message.